0: Okay, hey pa- no. This <laughs> book Where am I? Twenty 20- what? Oh oh oh, I was looking at the wrong thing. 30? No. I think we, we were at the end of page 27. Maybe. 27, yes. We're wrong at the end, but now I call. 32. No. There we go. Okay, end, end of page 27. Um, page 16. On the right side, I'm going the last paragraph. So we ended off last class discussing the fact, the meditation that somebody will then think about during prayer after specifically being involved in his daily affairs, taking the time, putting everything aside to connect with God in this way. And when he does this I and mean, he truly integrates this knowledge and these ideas, these, um, this meditation that he's been thinking about in prayer, it will cause him to experience a tremendous amount of love for God. It will bring forth the concealed love of the godly soul into his conscious reality in a way that it actually affects the animal soul as well. The godly soul's love bursts forth. We said this is called an ahava um, avatolam because it's a love that comes specifically through contemplating God's presence in the world through tapping into the truth of God through actually looking at our surroundings. And we said that this is called in the Zohar, Le demalka, to be absorbed in the essence of the king, that we can actually hold, so to speak, God himself. In other places in Tani, actually, um, the analogy that's given is that we're giving God a hug, actually, that we're truly becoming one with God and we're able to only hold him because of this experience, this physical experience that we find ourselves in. And so today we're going to take this idea to an, way, to an even deeper level and understand a little bit of the workings of this. Why is it that specifically through the godly soul becoming so involved in the reality of the animal soul and then rising above that, so to speak, and transforming the animal soul into a conduit and a channel for God as well, Why is it that that is specifically what enables the godly soul to reach new heights? So we're going to speak a little bit today actually about the animal soul. Where does the animal soul come from? What gives it such tremendous power to enable the godly soul to reach such tremendous heights, right? Because you could see it in two ways. I think McKaylee asked this question a little bit. Like is the animal soul like a stepping stone almost that needs to kind of be experience and then put out the way so that the godly soul can get to the next level? Um, and the answer is no. Actually, the animal soul, as we're going to discuss today, the animal soul is almost that which pulls the godly soul up because, as we're going to discuss, it comes from a much higher place in spirituality, a much deeper place that's, more, um, that's closer to God. And when the animals, the godly soul becomes invested and involved with the, with the world, with the challenges and with the animal soul. It get the animal soul is that which, which actually takes it to the next level. It's not a stepping stone that needs to be pushed aside. It's actually the, the next level that we're trying to reach, um, but to, to, to actually be able to reach and to experience. First, though, before we discuss that, the origin of the animal soul and why it actually enables the godly soul to reach such a level, we're going to speak about the fact that right at the bottom of page 16, the Altarabi calls this love that we reached, that we discussed at length last class, he calls it... Teshuvah. He says that this love is also called Teshuvah. Have you guys heard this concept of Teshuvah, right, or of a Baal Teshuvah, somebody who is a master of Teshuvah? Teshuvah is very often translated as to repent, right, repentance, Um, which is an aspect of Teshuvah because there's actually, there's a halachic aspect of Teshuvah, the Rambam details that it's a mitzvah, it's an obligation actually to do Teshuvah. And what that practically looks like is to say i to say this thing that i've been doing that's been disconnecting me from god i'm not going to do it again and then not doing it that's like that's the that's the simple definition of what teshuva is then you can add on different layers of teshuva and different elements and you can go deeper and deeper in teshuva. but the basic commandment is to say is to say i've been doing this i'm not going to do it anymore and then actually not to do it you've done teshuva it's not really much more complicated than that but the translation of teshuva it does not mean to repent it means to return. Lashuv, right? Lashuv in Hebrew means to return. And when you, you're returning, you're returning to the place that you once so were, right? You can't return. You don't say I'm returning, you know, to this new park that I've never been to, so I'm going there, right? Returning means I've been there before. So we're returning to a place where we started out. And what what does that mean? And so based on what we've been discussing, the idea is that we have this godly soul and we have this love within us. It's always been there. It's been there even before we came down into this world. And so when we're doing Teshuvah, which is this process of actually leaving, right? You can't return if you haven't left, right? So Teshuvah is a process of leaving the place where we were, coming down into this world, dealing with the challenges around us, overcoming them, finding space for God in our life, and that process is a process of teshuva. We leave and then, so that we can then return, we can then tap into the truth of who we really are, which is that we are a piece of God, that we love God, that we want a relationship with God. And that is called this love. And the altar is gonna say that this love is actually an infinite love. It's, it's the most powerful love that we, that, that, um, that can be. And it specifically comes from the fact that we've left. The, the process of teshuva is only possible again because we left, it's only possible because we're facing challenges, because there's friction in our lives. That's what actually enables us to get to this tremendous love for God. As we discussed, right, that sometimes the wanting is more powerful than the having, that process of feeling so far away and having such a desire to return to God himself. In that wanting, we actually have God, and it's a very powerful experience. Um, So there's definitely that element of it. And in addition, I've lost my train of thought, what was the second thing I was going to say about that? Okay. I lost my train of thought there. But the idea is there's an analogy brought in for this idea of Teshuvah and why specifically this friction that we deal with in our lives enables us to reach the most powerful love that, we could, that anybody could experience for God, even more powerful than the love of the angels who are actually experiencing rays and revelations of God. And the analogy that's brought is that if you put two people next to each other for a race, okay, there's a finish line. And one person in front of him at the end of the finish line is $10 million. And the other person, there's absolutely nothing at the finish line, but behind him, you light a fire at his feet that starts to chase him. Who's going to get to the finish line first? The guy with the fire, right? We run faster when we're running away from danger than we're running towards reward, and so the idea is a Tzadik, for example, who doesn't have this friction, right? Who doesn't have these Mayim Rabim challenges that we do, whose animal soul is completely subservient to his godly soul. He's running towards the truth of God, right? And that's pretty powerful, and it's, 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 it's going to go quickly, right? But the Baal Teshuvah is somebody who has a fire at his feet, He doesn't appreciate totally the truth of what God is. He doesn't truly understand and comprehend what he's running towards, but he knows what he's running away from because he's experienced reality devoid of godliness, right? He's experienced reality, he's experienced darkness. And when he wants to leave that, right? Now that he's experienced darkness and now he wants to find the light, he wants to find the truth the running away from darkness, which is this process of Teshuvah, the leaving of all of these layers of concealment and these lies that we've told ourselves and these protections and walls that we've put up that have shut God out, so to speak. The moment we shed those, that process of reaching toward God is actually faster because it's almost like we have this fire licking at our feet. So that's the idea of, um, there's, a, there's a very popular saying in Hasidus, which is that the place where a Bolsheva stands, a tzaddik cannot reach. Right. And it's tzaddik is somebody who is literally a godly presence in this world. He's somebody who doesn't have to fight this fight. And he's a very powerful force. However, he can't reach this level that a Baltic Shuvah reaches, this process that we go through where we have friction in front of us, where we have challenges. And despite that, not actually despite it, not despite the challenges, because of the challenges, we reach toward God, we make this space, we make this time, we find the love within ourselves, we draw it forth, we think about God, we make time for Him. We are reaching a level that Tzarei could never reach, and this is the idea of Teshuvah. The idea of Teshuvah is that we are one with God. We do love God, and the process of Teshuvah is shedding away all the layers and the protections that we put onto ourselves. Maybe as children, where we act, where we truly needed them. There were points in time where we needed to, when the where the animals needed to be very loud because it needed to protect us. But we're shedding all of that away. And we're, we're, we're reconnecting to our core and to our truth. And that's the idea of Teshuvah. We're returning to the person that we really are. I just heard this um, conversation that a, a psychologist detailed that she had had with a client of hers. I thought it was very powerful. Um, her name is Davari Nisbaum. If anyone likes podcasts, she has a podcast called um, Hasidus Through the Eyes of a Psychologist. And she's fantastic. Definitely recommend checking her out. And I was just listening to a class of hers where she, details an experience she had with a client, that the client came in and she had just suffered something, suffered a tragedy. She'd just gone through something very tragic. And she told, Davori, she told her that most days she's not sad, she's actually afraid. So she asked her, why are you afraid? And she said, because I know that what happened to me was a punishment from God. And I'm afraid, like, how is God going to punish me next? And she asked her, why do you think that what you want to do is a punishment from God? And she said, because I, because I, did, I do bad things. And then she asked her, do you also do good things? She said, yeah. So, so why are you defining yourself by the fact that you do bad things? What about the good things that you do? And so she said, well, I remember the bad things, because the bad things I don't want to do, and then I do them, and they stand out to me. So that's how I see myself as a person, because it's all those times where I don't want to do it, and I did it anyway. And she said, well, why don't you want to do those bad things? She said, well, I don't want to do bad things. I want to do good things. And so then she asked her, well, why don't you define yourself by that person, the person who doesn't want to do bad things, who wants to do good things, right? Good morning. And she said that that was a very powerful realization for a client, and it's, it's something that we we know we, we so tend to define ourselves by the things that we do that disconnect us from God but when we tr- when we un- acknowledge that deep down we don't want to be doing those things in the first place that's not who we really are who we really are is someone who doesn't want to do it and maybe sometimes does anyway right the person who doesn't want to do it that's who we really are right that's our deepest motivation our deepest motivation is to have a connection with God is to connect with him And so that is the process of Teshuvah. The process of Teshuvah is acknowledging and realizing that that point within ourselves that doesn't want to do that thing is who we really are. There's an interesting analogy in the Tanya about the animal soul, which we're going to get into in a moment. We're going to discuss the animal soul's role in all of this because we know that these challenges that we face become very real because of the animal soul, which is there to protect us. Um, The idea of the animal soul is that it also comes from God right? Obviously, because nothing can exist without God, but it's been given a task and that task is to make it very difficult for us to experience the truth of Hashem, um, because it's that which enables us to have free choice, right? Especially the, what we call the Hara, the inclination, the, the, the negative inclination that the, um, the animal soul can sometimes turn towards. But the Altravi gives an analogy for the, for the animal soul. The story of a king who had a son, who was going to take out the kingdom one day, and he wanted to test his son and see if his son actually has integrity and has character, if he'll be able to lead. And so he hired a prostitute to seduce his son to see what he would do and how he would cope. And the prostitute comes, and deep down her desire really is that the prince is going to say no. She loves her prince, and she wants him to, uh, to succeed. She's doing what she has to do, but she wants him to say no. And the Yalchari says that that's, what, that's the animal soul. The animal soul is doing what it has to do, but it wants us to say no, because it too is a piece of God, and it's just doing its job. And so when we can understand that, that the, the entire truth of who we really are is a person, is a soul, is a being that wants to connect with God, that's truly what we want, and that's truly who we are, and where we come from is truly from God, that's the process of Teshuvah, just shedding those layers and acknowledging, acknowledging that that's who we really are. So let's see that inside. The altar is going to connect all of this idea of this love that we reach specifically through the challenges that we face, that love for God that we experience, and that this is equated to Teshuvah, to the process of Teshuvah. So we're on page 27, 16. Before we go inside, any questions or comments before we see this idea inside? Good? Okay. Page 27, 16 on the bottom. This yearning is called the desire to become absorbed in the essence of the king, meaning experience how we are part of God Himself. That is what we ended off with. And now let's continue. Venikra b'chinas ahavazu. And this love is called bechinas teshuva. It's called teshuva. Shehu yatir. And it's with a great intensity. This love that comes specifically from the fact that we're confronting challenges and that we find ourselves in darkness is very powerful because it comes specifically from the darkness. Why is that so? Shahaya Osek, because this person who's achieved this love, he was involved yanim only in physical matters, the Hevle Ailam and in the Hevle means like nothingness, in the vanities of the world. As well, this quote that's repeating itself, the advantage of light that specifically comes from darkness, the advantage of the love that specifically comes from a person who's been dealing and involved in physicality, in that which conceals God. The Nikra Avazu, and another name for this love is It's a love that's called which means with all of your might. mamash. It is an infinite love dafka which comes specifically from the opposite of truth, from the opposite of holiness, it comes from the darkness. So we say every single day in the Shema, um, we say the Shema, and then we say the prayer of the Ahavta, which is from the Torah, and it's a command that we got in the Torah, which is, and you should love Hashem your God. And you should love Hashem your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Vassidus explains, well, the Gemara explains this as well, but there's different levels of love of God. One's characterized b'chol levavcha, one's characterized b'chol nafshecha, and once characterized b'chol maodecha, b'chol maodecha, with all of your um with all of your might, which is also translated with everything that you have, with absolutely everything that you have. In other places, it's considered with all of your wealth, this is the level of love that we achieve. It's the most infinite level of love that we can reach for Hashem and we specifically reach that love through coming down here and dealing with the physicality and then setting aside time to think about God and to awaken this love within ourselves. This is a very interesting Gemara. As our sages have said, when, um, before I read the Gemara, I'll just give some context. When God created the world, after every single day of creation, it says that God looked back on what He had done and He saw that it was good. But then on Tuesday, today's not Tuesday, tomorrow's Tuesday. Um, on Tuesday, it says that God said that he looked at what he had done and he saw that it was tov ma'od. It was very good. Um, that's why Tuesday is considered like a, a good day. <laughs> um, tov ma'od. So the Gemara explains that tov, when God says it was good, tov, goodness, represents malach ha'chaim, which is the angel of life. And tov ma'od, which can be translated as the godly soul. Okay, So tov is the godly soul. Tov ma'od, that which is very good. Zeh This is the angel of death, or what we can call the animal soul. And this is a very strange gemara on the surface, Pope, but now that we've understood a little bit of of the advantage that light of light that comes from darkness, and we're going to be discussing shortly the advantage, specifically of the animal soul, the advantage of the physicality around us. Tov ma'od, very good. It's not, the God, it's not the angel of death, but it's overcoming the angel of death. Overcoming the angel of death, overcoming our animal soul, overcoming those concealments and klipot and layers that we've built around ourselves and that God built around the world. When we can extract the godliness from within that, that's tov ma'od, that's very good. It's even better than just the godly soul, than revealed light, than godliness. She'al yadei ha'hipuch, that's specifically through transforming, vha dafka. The, specifically the darkness which we can call the animal soul because the animal soul's instincts are pushing us away from the from transcendence, are pushing us away from trust in God we can come to a level of love which is called with all of your might and this is an infinite level of love for God I am not going to read this explanation because it's basically what we've said and now we're going to go into the discussion of the animal soul. why is it that specifically by confronting so we, we know on a, on a more i guess we can call it theoretical level why it would make sense that specifically through confronting darkness right through having challenges we can reach this level this love for god on a on a, on a more like um theoretical level we can understand the process right would you say that we understand the process so far of why, you know, specifically the process, the godly soul comes down into this physical world. It confronts challenges which conceal the truth of God, and then it finds time to pray and to connect with God and to have a personal relationship with him. And that connection and that relationship is a deeper connection than if he hadn't come down. That's basically a summary of what we said so far. Yeah. I have a question.
1: This may be um, reflecting, like, Christian ideology that just absorbs, like, being an American, but um, like I'm like wondering about Adam and like the idea of like the original like mistake basically, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering whether like Hasidus, like views that mistake as being like ultimately good and in, in the, like mm-hmm. reflecting this dynamic that you're talking about. Um, And I guess, like, a second question is, um, like, is the idea that, like, does Hacidus see that, like, mistake as being, like, the thing that, like, kind of cascaded down and, like, makes us have the struggles that we do? Or is Adam just, like, an example of a struggle that was always going to be in place for people?
0: Mm, That's a very good question. So I don't know I don't know what the Christians have to say about like, that. In Christianity but
1: it's like this idea of like the original sin.
2: The original like, sin. he brought sin into the world. Like before uh-huh. him there was no idea of sin and like we were as close to God and that was like I uh-huh. guess God's plan. And then because of this we were kicked out of the garden for sin and bad things entered the mm-hmm. world and like it's basically like the root for all evil.
0: Mm-hmm. In the world, okay. Okay. So thing. that's not how the citizens okay. <laughs> say. That's not how the Torah sees it. Um I'll say how from this very, there are many, many, many different explanations. There's, um, have you guys heard of Rav Soloveitchik? Yeah. So he has a book called, oh, I don't remember the name of the book, where he speaks about Adam 1 and Adam 2, because there are actually two accounts of the story yeah. of creation. And so that's just, that, that's, you know, there are many ways of looking at the story. But the way that Hasura sees it is that, first of all, this wasn't a mistake. Adam didn't make a mistake. Adam made a conscious choice. And before we can discuss what that conscious choice was, we need to look at what the reality of the world was before, before he chose to sin. Okay, the reality of the world was that they were in the Garden of Eden, which is within this with, within this physical reality, but a spiritual, much higher spiritual dimension of that reality. What does that mean? Yeah, everything was good over there, which means that there was just there was nothing to avoid. There weren't there wasn't there wasn't um, There wasn't what we call klipa to avoid. Everything was good. Everything was an opportunity to serve God. There were trees. There were fruit. Adam had to eat the fruit from the trees. That was his command from God. That's how he was going to connect with God, listen to what God says, and Mashiach was supposed to come within like three hours. (laughs) It was Erev Shabbat. If he had waited three hours, Mashiach was going to come, eternal um, paradise, right, revelation of God. Um, What ended up happening was that below... Below this world, what we call Asiya Ruchani, the spiritual Asiya where Adam was, there was what we call an underworld, okay? And there was the world below it, which is the lowest of the lowest world. And there, there were all of these um, beings that negated Hashem's presence, um, what we can call, some people call them demons, whatever you want to call them. There, it, it was a presence of what we call klipa that concealed over the truth of Hashem. The original plan was, basically, klipa doesn't actually exist. Klippa gets a very, very limited life force from Hashem when it's originally created and then it just naturally dies out unless it finds that which to feed off of because the truth of Klippa is that it's nothing, right? What is Klippa? What What are the shells and the layers that conceal the truth of God? They come from God and so if Klippa doesn't find that which to nourish itself from it doesn't find sparks of God to feed itself it just dies away so the point was, Adam, you stay up there. You don't have to deal with the Klipper. You don't have to look at it. You don't have to know about all of this negative energy and negative force. You do good. And by you doing good, the is not going to have anything to feed off of because when something's intensely holy, the Klipper can't get nearby. But when something's got a tiny remnant of holiness, a very, very little amount, then the Klipper can come and get more energy. Don't give the Klipper any energy. Do good things. The is going to die. Mashiach's going to come. Adam, have we discussed this in, in class? Um, it's one of my favorite, like Hasidic interpretations of a story in, um, of a story in in the, in the Torah. Adam said, "I don't want to do it that way. I want to see which one I'm fighting. I don't want to fight on a theoretical level, the klipa, by doing good things. I want to see the process of what I'm doing. I want to fight the klipa and have it right in front of me. Okay, um, and it's a fair point." <laughs> Um, there's the, the analogy that's given for this idea is that there was a king who called in somebody who was a bricklayer and he said to him if I would pay you to do exactly what you do as a bricklayer in my palace but i would pay you ten times more would you would you come he said sure so he came and the king took the bricklayer right into his private room and he said okay stop so what do you mean there's no bricks? He said, no, 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 just do what you do. Just do the actions that you do without actually any bricks. I'm gonna pay you way more, it's an easier job, right? Okay, so he started. He started just acting as if he was laying bricks, right? That's what he, everything that he had done, but without actually doing anything, without any of the physical material. And he quit after the first day, he said, I can't do this anymore. So what do you mean you can't do this anymore? You're just complaining about your old job, it's out in the sun, it's annoying, it's back Let you know, now I'm giving you this and, and and to which the bricklayer responded, Yeah, but I need to see what I'm doing right? And um, one, of, one of the descriptions of the torture that was put on the Jews in the slavery of Egypt was that they would have to build something and then it would be destroyed and build it again, it would be destroyed. It's the ultimate form of torture for a human being. We need to know and see the fruit of our labor. And Adam's claim was, I need to see what I'm doing. And that's why he ate from the tree of good and evil, so that he can then be able, his, his, his idea was that he can see the evil that he's facing, while he overcomes it. So you can see what he's doing. But what actually happened was that he was bumped down to the underworld, right, which is where we are today. And it's called the Eight Sadat Tovarah, it's the tree of good and evil that's mixed together. He thought, I'm good, God is good, and then there's all this bad stuff I'm gonna have to fight. But what ended up happening was he came down and the good and the bad became completely enmeshed into one thing. And he got a new task, which was to extract the good out of the bad, which is a lot more difficult, because then you really have to get your hands dirty. You really have to get involved in, and when I say bad, I don't mean evil. I mean that which covers over the truth of God, okay? It's not necessarily evil. Um, And so it was a completely new reality that Adam and all of the future people were faced with, and it just made the process of bringing Mashiach a lot longer, right? Because it's a lot more of a strenuous, difficult process. And... So I'm assuming that that's a little bit different than, than what you might have understood before. Um, everything that happens is not, um, it's not a mistake, especially when we speak about such great souls, right? Even like the other, many times when people... When people did things that weren't, um, let's say, what God wanted, we never see it as a mistake. Because to to make a mistake, you have to be unconscious. And great people like Adam, he was not unconscious, right? We're unconscious, so we can make mistakes. But people on that level don't make mistakes. They make conscious choices that might be the wrong choice. And so he made (coughs) the wrong choice in that moment, the wrong choice as in that's not what God had expected of him. It It changed the reality of the world. However, what we're going to be discussing next is the advantage of the real, of the advantage of the underworld basically the advantage that actually came about because adamson because our reality has changed so much and that advantage is that when we actually face the challenge head on when we involve ourselves in the in the physicality right we, we really because we have to in order to extract the godliness from something we have to face it again we, we can't now it used to be the idea was if we were still in times of Adam, you sit in a cave, you meditate about God, you do what God told you to do, and everything else is just going to sort itself out. We can't do that anymore. But the advantage that comes with that is that there's actually an advantage to this clipa, to these concealments, that when we confront them and face them, they raise us up to a level we could never have been raised to if we were just sitting in a cave.
2: So do you think that even when we face these challenges, even if we don't, like I feel like Overcoming a challenge, there's always so many different paths to overcoming it. I guess, how do we know that we've actually overcome the challenge, even when it feels sometimes as though we face this very hard thing and we haven't always felt like, yeah, like we crushed it, like we got mm-hmm. past it? Like, do you think that every challenge, even if you don't always overcome it, is still something that elevates our souls? Hmm
0: so I think there's two elements here first of all I'll start with the second thing that you said kind of we could think yeah is is there an advantage in the challenge itself without the overcoming of it and the answer is not um, from what I've understood not so much obviously everybody grows in some way from challenges but some people actually get dragged down and completely crushed by challenges and they find themselves in a world that is much much darker in every single conceivable way so so it's the two-step process of, of, of facing a challenge and overcoming it. Now, we never fully overcome a challenge. That We're going to discuss that in the second part of the Mimer. Well, we're already in this, I don't know where we are. But um, a little bit later, we spoke at the beginning about the fact that there's two levels of rest. There's the Shabbat, and then there's, there's the lower level of Shabbat, and the higher level of Shabbat. Okay. So we're going to discuss the fact that the lower level of Shabbat means the fact that we have a challenge, but the moment we overcome it, in some way, a new challenge appears, right? Yeah. We have Shabbat, but then... Few hours later, we say goodbye to Shabbat. We're back into the week, right? It's a cyclical process, and every single cycle, every single moment where we do overcome that, even partially, we do raise ourselves up incrementally, until, as we're going to see a little later, until we get to the ultimate level of peace, the ultimate Shabbat, which means that we've overcome all of the challenges and now we can truly rest. Um, but. Is that ever actually (laughs) happening? We're working towards it. It's going to happen when Mashiach comes. That's the idea of Mashiach. It's the ultimate level of rest. It's it's a fact. That's it. We now we can truly rest from the challenges, as God promised that He's going to uh, in Yeshia, We read the verse from Yeshia that one day He's no no longer going to get angry at us. No longer going to test us. Um, But is there an advantage to the challenge itself without actually overcoming it in any way?
2: I mean, I think well. Sorry, just, I, don't, I yeah. feel like there's no way you can be thrown a challenge and not at least somewhat over. You know what I mean? Like, you, yeah. like you can't just like sit there. I mean, I guess you could sit there and do nothing, but I don't know. I feel like there's like no way to like face a challenge and I'm not at least like tiny, tiny, tiny bit like overcome it. You know? Yeah,
0: I hear that. Also, just because we're 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 wired to survive. So if somebody totally gives up, then what he does is he dies. So that does happen, right? That does happen. And that is the idea of, of not overcoming a challenge. But if we're fighting back in any which way, which is the way that we've been wired, it is to fight back, it's to survive, that process gets us deeper and deeper and deeper and closer and closer and closer to our truth. And it builds us up, but also just on a practical, not like a spiritual level, it builds up our character, right? Mm -hmm. Most people, if you'd ask them if they wouldn't go through a challenge again, even if it was difficult, many people would say, like, I wouldn't be who I am today without it. Like, it was terrible. I wouldn't wish it upon anybody. I wouldn't want to go through it again. But to erase that from my past, I wouldn't be who I am today. So I do think that as human beings, we are built to overcome these challenges. And we're never fully overcoming a challenge. We're never fully able to kick back our feet and say, I'm done, I finished the fight. But, but we're able to overcome small bits and pieces.
2: And do you think that drive to survive is like from animal mostly? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's why it was one of the reasons why it's so important. Um, yeah. If we didn't have it, we would just go right back up <laughs> to our source. Do you think
2: like, you're talking about, like how there's like a balance, I guess, between like the animal and like the godly um, soul. Like, do you ever think there's like a time where like it, not like in a bad way, but like I guess like in a need for survival way, where like the animal soul like takes over more, but like without it being like let like taking us away like less wholly, like because the more like out of like need for survival.
0: Hmm. When we're kids, it's the most important thing. Like our animal soul, our animal soul we're born with immediately, and our godly soul comes in incrementally, right, in stages, until we're bar, bar mitzvah and then it's fully, you know, it's fully invested. But in those initial stages, we, that de- we definitely we need our animal soul like the most. Um, it teaches we put up certain rules and boundaries and barriers and expectations and and. Um, they literally enable us to survive as children but then it's almost like a reverse process as we grow up to shed those protective layers and allow ourselves to 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 bring out that godly side of ourselves. which because a lot of the things that we need as children we then they become actually a a barrier as adults right they become a it becomes something that holds us back as adults if we hold them onto them, which is what we started to discuss at the beginning, that there's certain elements we have to shed from our childhood in order to be able to mature in our relationship with God, in our relationship with people. It's a painful process, but it's necessary. Um, so I would say, back to your question, because I, I want to bit off, but if we were to find the animal soul, the animal soul is, it's worried, right? It's... Short-sighted, doesn't think about transcendent things, thinks about the here and the now. Um, It's worried, it's short-sighted. It's, I'm trying to think of the word, insecure in its own existence, (laughs) okay? It's constantly needing validation that it exists and that it's okay. Because the truth is that it doesn't really exist, because it's just hard. Um think of more so those elements and expressions of the godly soul you know to be worried for example or to be short-sighted I don't think that those things help us to serve God because when we're worried we're saying I don't trust God in this moment that's why I'm worried right if you trust God and it's going to work out you're not going to worry that's the ultimate um, like test if you want to see do I have bitachon how much bitachon do I have it's like how much do I worry Um, so those things are not helpful but underneath that okay underneath the expressions of the animal soul which is short-sightedness and worry and there are other words that i'm not that are escaping me right now um you know lacking self-esteem or whatever that is behind that is the force of the animal soul and the truth of it which is here to keep us alive right that's extremely important that's the most helpful thing possible to help us reach God. If we lose that, we lose our ability to truly connect with God. So I think I went way off from your question, but I hope it's answering it. that there's an intrinsic value to the animal soul in the service of God. Yeah. The animal soul is also very passionate and loud, as I mentioned to Michaela before. And that is one of the things that the, animal, the godly soul almost lacks, and the animal soul needs to teach the godly soul how to be passionate in the service of God. Um, it's called an animal. An animal is passionate, right? It's instinctual, it's passionate. So so the animal soul has what to bring to the table. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it has what to bring to the table, but the outward expressions of it usually are hold us back. The worry and the passion, let's say, for the physicality, the short-sightedness, the lack of self-esteem. But when we dig deep to the core of what it is, it is it is helpful. So we're going to be discussing a little bit now about where does the animal soul come from. And the animal soul can be lumped almost into the category of that which is physical. Okay? It's the physical matter around us that says, including our body, that says, I exist on my own. Right. That's almost like the definition of physicality from this Hasidic perspective. What is physicality? It's something you look at it and it does not scream, God is creating me every single moment. I'm like an angel. Right? I'm like the sefirot, which we're going to discuss shortly, these lights of Hashem that God uses to bring the world into being, you ask a Safira, you say, uh, who are you? It'll say, like, you know, look back and say, like, meet God, right? It, does, it doesn't have any sense of its own existence. However, physicality says I exist. We use our physical, you know, even when we wake up in the morning, our first instinct, before we say moda ani, our first experience is that we woke up, Right? Wake up! It's like I woke up. Oh wait, God made me wake. God made me wake up. Modani Thank you, God, for helping me wake up. But our first initial experience is that we woke up, right? It's not necessarily negative. Um, It actually means that we're we're a true, ultimate reflection of God because God brings you know God is the God is the only thing that was not created by something else, and the fact that we have that experience in the morning, that we were not created by something else, it just shows that we are actually tapping into this very, very deep level of truth of God, which is that he wasn't created by anything else. So I'm getting a little bit, (laughs) I'm getting a little bit um, all over. I'm just like getting excited here. But (laughs) what was I trying to say? Um, Oh, the, the animal soul and the physicality. The animal soul says I exist on my own. Okay, And I need to keep existing and I need to keep helping this person to survive. It's up to me there's no god in the picture okay it's short set doesn't it doesn't not interested at all in transcendence the physicality around us as well we look at everything and it just really honestly truly if you're going to be honest with you, it looks like it exists on its own right the bookshelf behind you does not look like god is bringing it into being every moment It looks like it's just standing there so physicality and our animal soul fall into this category it's the ultimate concealment of the truth of god the there's nothing lower than that it's the ultimate level, it's the, uh, it's the least amount of light that exists in any of the spiritual world in anything that's been created, okay? But the idea is in Hasidus that the lower something falls, the higher it is in its source, okay? This is a very fundamental concept in Hasidus that comes up a lot. And I always bring the example, the example that always comes to mind is a very negative one. So I'm trying to think of a, okay, a tree, we'll do a tree because the other one is not, is, is um, a very, 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 very tall tree, a very tall tree falls, the tip of the tree is going to fall furthest away from the roots right as opposed to a little shrub, the shrub falls over from the wind it 's going to remain very connected to its roots it 's very nearby right so the the higher something is when it falls, the lower down it falls. Um, an example why I think it's somebody falls like somebody. Okay, let's say there's a trampoline, okay? There's a big building and there's a trampoline at the bottom, okay? And somebody jumps. If they're on the first floor, they're going to make a little, you know, they're going to go down in the trampoline like this much. But if they're all the way at the top, they're going to go whoop, like, right? Probably, probably going to go through the trampoline. But anyway, if it's a really, really strong one, okay? It's going to go really, really, really deep down and then it's going to bounce back up, right? So <laughs> that's just always example and I think I'm sorry. But it's this idea. The higher something starts out in its source, when it falls, the lower down it falls, So when we say that something's lower, we mean less revealed godliness it has within it. So the idea in Hasidus is that that which seems the lowest around us, our animal soul, our body, and the physicality of this world, nature, which screams I exist on my own, which totally conceals God's light, started off in the highest place, higher than any angel, higher than any soul, higher than our godly soul, higher than all of the spiritual worlds. Started off in a very, very lofty place. And because it started off so lofty and then it fell, when it fell, it went really, really, really deep. Okay? Um, I'm just, a lot of examples are coming up, but to, I think the message is, is clear. Yeah.
2: So at the beginning of class, I had this thought, and if you're getting to it, let me know. It sounds like to me the animal soul could be closer to God versus the godly soul closer to godliness. Is that
0: right? okay? Yeah. Okay. So within the godly soul, there are also layers. The ultimate essence of the godly soul is God, like it's the same thing.
1: Okay.
0: Okay. But that's called the essence of the godly soul. Okay. Is so one with the essence of God. Okay. But the manifestations and expressions of the godly soul, once it actually descends into the form of this, of spiritual existence, once it takes on its own form in some way, even a spiritual form, is less. it's less close to the truth of God than the animal soul is. And we're going to discuss why that is now. Like, how did that happen? So, oh, wow, it's 10.15. Okay. So, um, let's read, (laughs) okay, let's read the the first two paragraphs here and then we'll continue with this idea tomorrow. Okay. So, page 18, first paragraph on the right. The Hainu. So, this advantage that we've just been discussing of the darkness over the light, of the animal soul over the godly soul, of the of the angel of death over the angel of life because in its source way up on high the source, the source the root of the animal soul is even higher than the level of the godly soul and now we're going to start to discuss the process of how this happened I'll read this paragraph and we'll elaborate on what he's talking about tomorrow. Okma Shekatuva, as it's written in Bereshit, These are the kings asher malchu, who ruled by Edom in the land of Edom, lifnei malach, malach melech Lifnay Israel. before the Jewish kings ruled over the Jewish people. Shehu bechinet nefeshelokit, this is referring to the godly soul. So this is an idea, we, when Chasidus looks at a verse, on the it takes it to the very esoteric meaning but the practical meaning of this verse is saying that before there were jewish kings who were ruling in the land of israel there were non-jewish kings right before the jewish people came and conquered the land of israel there were other kings who were ruling over their people but then it says that they all died they were all, you know and then the jewish kings came and started to rule And so we're gonna see this from the process of worlds and the process of souls, that before the godly soul, the Jewish kings ruled, the non-Jewish kings ruled, the animal soul ruled. It was there first. We see this practically in the fact that our animal soul comes into our body first and then gradually um, our godly soul comes in and that's actually the way that it was, was above as well, that our animal soul existed almost before the godly soul. And we'll discuss what that process actually looked like tomorrow. We're going to discuss a world called Tohu and Tikkun, um, and try and understand the Kabbalistic idea. Try and understand what how that can help us understand this process. Okay. Any questions or comments? We're good. Thank okay. You. I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you. I love all your questions, by the way. I I yeah. Good questions this year. Okay. Very. Well.